0: Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are illiquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So, if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at Aventure.vc. That's A V E N T U R E.VC. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the US or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you wanna be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Thank you, Caroline McMorrow, for the intro to our guest today, Will Nitza, founder and CEO of IQ Bar. IQ Bar is a plant-based protein company for your brain and body. We discuss how Will got turned to brain food and the origin story of IQ Bar and what brain food actually is, how he growth hacked his Indiegogo campaign. This was such a fascinating story. I've never heard of somebody doing what he did on Indiegogo to get sales and to kind of launch and kickstart his brand, how he was able to get into retail, why they went conventional first, which is quite unusual. Usually many brands go to the natural channel that that have been on the show, and why they aren't actually in Whole Foods currently. Without further ado, here's Will. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, really? Really appreciate you taking the time. So, talk to me about what you were doing before IQ Bar, and as well as a little bit of the, the genesis behind the brand. I uh, had no background in CPG.
1: I didn't. know one in my family had a background in it. Didn't know anyone who had a background in it. So, truly an outsider to to the industry. Um, I went to college. Went to Harvard uh, undergrad. Stayed in Boston, so stayed local right after that. And, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do while I was in college. I knew classes I enjoyed and classes I didn't enjoy, but I, I knew what I didn't want to do professionally. I didn't want to go into banking or consulting or things like that, uh, but I didn't know what I positively did want to do. And so I took a job in software, uh, sales and marketing right out of school, just sort of by default. And, uh, it was all right. I mean, I, I, cut my teeth in Excel and PowerPoint, and how do you run a meeting, and what's a sales cycle look like. Uh, I was was selling uh, operations and supply chain software to energy companies, predominantly oil and gas companies. Um, So I became an expert in B2B SaaS. I became an expert in oil and gas and utilities. Um, But net-net, I was definitely not passionate about any of it. And I knew that three months in. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'm not going to do this for 30, 40, 50 years. What am I going to do? And then, yeah, I just got, I, I got really into nutrition because I felt like crap because I was working really long hours and I had a bad diet. And then that sort of steamrolled into this concept of brain food. Um, and then it all just sort of the dominoes fell from there. So happy to get into it. Chronologically and in whatever level of granularity you'd like. No,
0: I I appreciate that. So, what what I guess is brain food when you were, I guess, feeling like crap and wanted to, you know, and kind of got into nutrition. Were there certain elements or parts of nutrition that was really that that you found really helpful, or like kind of like a like like a moment in time that you? um, that you started to, I mean, I assume you obviously started to feel better, but, um, what was that kind of like moment? Like,
1: yeah, I mean, so this was like 2016 ish and paleo was getting really, really big at that time. And so I, the first thing I got into was paleo, which is really just eating whole foods for the most part and, and cutting sugar and carbs or, and so that was kind of like the gateway drug into just being interested in, nutrition and, and diet in general um and then and by the way i felt really good when i ate on, on that diet and basically just cut out bread and pasta and rice and things like that and then i got into i read this book called grain brain by dr david perlmutter and that was fascinating to me because it was it was nutrition meets cognition and m- most things were nutrition meets the body how do i lose weight how do i perform better athletically etc And didn't really focus, I guess the closest thing was bulletproof uh, to to diet's impact on the brain and bulletproof coffee. And there's a major cognitive piece to a lot of Dave Asprey's work, if you're familiar with his stuff. Um, And that was kind of a craze at the time, but most stuff was not relevant to the brain. So I read this book, Grain Brain, and it totally blew my mind. And, And that took things even a little further from paleo and moved more into the ketogenic realm. Of really cutting carbs, um, and what does that do for your brain in the short term, and then what does it do for your brain or, on the long term, and then vice versa? What is it? What happens to your brain if you eat pizza at noon every day today, and then what happens if you eat pizza every day for forty straight years? You know what happens to your brain then, and so yeah. But personally, I felt great um, on paleo, and then kind of dabbled with low carb diets and felt great on those too.
0: So for, for products, when you were kind of learning with this book, you know, grain brain and, um, and what, what nutritional aspects are actually good for the brain? Um, cause I think we talk a lot about, you know, what's good for the body, but like, how did you kind of break it down in terms of, um, in terms of what actually, um, is good for the brain? And then eventually how did this get to IQ bar?
1: Yeah, it's, there's actually like two sides to that coin. So a lot of it, honestly, is what's not good for the brain and then avoiding that, you know, a lot of it's an elimination perspective versus a additive perspective. So that is what, for instance, keto is. Keto is an elimination diet. You're eliminating carbs or net carbs. So just by eliminating things that are bad for your brain, your brain's going to work a lot better. Um. So carbs, which then spike your blood glucose and then your brain goes haywire and then you crash and yada, yada. So that's, that's honestly like a huge piece of the equation. But then on the additive side, basically what I did was I just researched a ton of, um, I literally had, when I had this concept for brain food, I had an Excel spreadsheet. I was like, okay, what's the, what compounds have the most research suggesting they're good for your brain? Could be, Growing new neurons could be uh, protecting you from Alzheimer's. Could be more nootropic, like it's an actual upper. I'm stimulated today, and I can do more work today. Whatever. What are all those things, and lay them all out? And then, what are the whole food ingredients that are highest in those? So, for like, let's say vitamin E, that would be almonds or um, you know, omega uh, vegan omega threes would be like chia seeds or. You know, adaptogens would be lion's mane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was like the starting point. It was like, all right, these are all the things uh, that could you could create a product with, and they're all rich in these specific compounds. And then here's
0: all the research that shows that these compounds are good. Why did you decide to start a food and beverage company? I know you weren't really maybe excited about your current job um, back then, but and then how did you think about as well um why like what type of product you wanted to make like a like why a bar um to why was that kind of the form yeah well i wanted to do my own
1: thing i had always wanted to do my own thing i didn't know what that meant like i would dabble with projects in college um and i always i I did i don't like having a boss I've never liked having a teacher or boss or authority figure. I've always wanted to do my own thing and and been fairly self-confident enough to think that I can do my own thing successfully. So that that was one piece. And then the second piece is I wanted to own the thing I did like tip to tail. I wanted to be able to create the product myself in addition to incorporating the company and hiring the people and raising the money. Like I I didn't want to be a non-technical founder and have an app. That was never interesting to me. So... I'm not a programmer. I'm not an engineer. You know, basically, I was either going to create a services business or a tangible goods business, and I just love products. I, I, I geek out and go into a store and just looking at packaging and products, and um, so I've always loved products. So I don't know. It's a confluence of variables that have led me into tangible, you know, into CPG, um, and then like the the food thing again all of my predilections on that side sort of synced up with this moment in time where I got really into diet and nutrition. I was never like a foodie growing up and anything like that. It just happened that I got into nutrition at that time and had this job I didn't really love. And, you know, those things kind of married up in that moment in time. and, And why a bar? I mean, honestly, it was like, it was like, all right, I want to create this let's see, say ready to eat or ready to drink brain functional thing, how many things can that actually be and what are attractive markets? You know, there aren't that many things where if you mash a bunch of stuff together, it's a product. Like a bar is one of them. Um, but you can't make like chips that are brain chips. I mean, I guess you could, but it's it's just less, the form factor is less conducive to that. Right. Um, and you want a big market you know yeah i i i've always wanted to play in a big competitive market versus try and be a totally not like try and invent a category i don't want to invent a category i think that's cool for people to do and that's you see those grand slam hits when it works but i think it's a higher percentage game you're playing if you go into a big competitive category and try and out compete
0: uh, the incumbents no totally Totally. And that that makes sense in terms of why you actually chose, you know, bar as a form factor and you wanted it to be you didn't want it to be like, for example, like a supplement, for example, you wanted it to be within food or drink. So um, and of course, you know taste delicious. Um, What was what was kind of the process when it comes to, you know, formulating and as well, well building out your eventually building out your whole supply chain?
1: Yeah, that was super iterative. And honestly, we're, it's a never-ending journey. Um, the beginning of it was just in my apartment. Similar story. You listen to like interviews of Peter Rahal from RX Bar, Laura, I think her name is American from Laura Bar. And everyone seems to start with a kit- KitchenAid in their kitchen, which is kind of cliche, but that's that's how I started too. And basically, one of the cool things about Food & Bev is the recipes on the product. So, you know, I literally went to a Whole Foods, bought like 30 bars, looked at the back, excelified everything, like cataloged it, collated it. I'm like, okay, it seems like most people use this as like a binder and most people use this as a protein source, blah, blah, blah. That gets you a starting point. Of course, there's tons of nuance within any given element that you see. Um, And then you, you know, you call, you just try and track down people who know more who are food scientists let's say who have worked in bars and you're like hey how would you recommend that you know you have this bind together but also get this amount of sweetness and have it last on a shelf for this amount of time blah 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 you just sort of have to triangulate right this is how i did it triangulate information and then i would just call big suppliers like cargill i'd be like hey i'm this company and of course i wasn't a company, but. I was like, I need samples. And so I just get samples um, from from big ingredient suppliers. And yeah, just messed around in my kitchen. And then I got linked up with a co-packer, tiny co-packer in Washington state because a bar brand in Boston used them. I pinged them, sat down for lunch with them, asked them a hundred questions. And then one of them was, where do you produce and can you introduce me to your your co-packer. And they did. And then had to sell that guy on why he should make a product. And eventually he said yes. And that was it.
0: Cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. When did you feel comfortable with your formation? That or even what were some of like the ways that you're able to test to see if it was the right formation? If it was, you know, not only you finding it delicious, but other people as well find it delicious, as well as having the the right profile that you wanted. A
1: lot bars are a weird category, right? If you're making like an ice cream cone, it's like, just make it really freaking delicious. Put a lot of sugar in it. Put a lot of chocolate in it. Like it's a pretty down the middle of the fairway move to do all those things with bars. It's, it's a functional category, right? People are eating it to like achieve X, Y, Z goals. They're not just like snacking necessarily, unless it's just like a granola bar or whatever. So it's just way more quantitative. It's more of a math problem. Um, So, you know, okay, I have this many grams to fit this many grams of protein in, you know, and it has to be vegan protein. And then I also have to have this much fiber and I want to have this much sugar. It's, It's highly quantitative and it's extremely challenging. So taste is, of course, incredibly important, but it's no more important than all those other variables. Like you have to achieve all of them, right? Because there's a bunch of good tasting bars on the shelf. So if if you're just going to make a good tasting bar, you're, you're never going to win. Um, again, super saturated category. So that's what makes it really tough is, um, you know, and you just honestly need, I mean, whether or not this is the right way to do it, basically we would make a bunch of educated guesses. We'd get the formulation to where we think it was, good enough and then we'd sell thousands of them and get tons of feedback and just over time you know we'd get enough people enough people say we want more protein and they're like wow like you get tons of requests for more protein could we have more protein and not degrade the product like if yes then add more protein you know and sure and then what gets really tough is like okay, we could do this, and that would be good in this way, but it would be bad in that way. That's where the really tough crossroads are. Um, so, like, do you want to jam a bunch of sugar alcohols in the product? Make it taste good, um, and it's still low net carb and all that, but there's this whole segment of the population who, who doesn't want that, right? So it's it's really challenging, Um it's really challenging. It's challenging if you choose a tough path, which like low carb is just inherently a really tough path.
0: No, that's great. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I can only imagine how like challenging it is as well as, as you say, you have to make kind of like tough decisions in terms of, um, okay, maybe, maybe it tastes better cause we have a bit more sugar here, but do we really want to be that brand that, you know, has a lot of sugar in our products? Right. Um, so, and, and kind of making those, those um those hard uh decisions the the other the other thing that drives it honestly is is dietary
1: trends like keto was an epic trend i mean that was like a seven-year run that most people thought was going to be like a two-year run or maybe three-year run and it was a seven-year run so i mean if you look at some of like the biggest brands like fastest growing food and bev brands like at least half of them were, were built on the back of keto. Um, so it was just an epic trend. So, and we were like right in the middle of it. So that was just another, you ask, like, why do you make the formulation choices you do? Like, a part of it's like, what is just ripping right now? And is, of course, it has to align with your brand. Like, it was a beautiful marriage of something being popular. And then, well, it turns out we were already wanting to be low carb. Low carb is good for your brain. Like it was, it was awesome. Um, But, you know, then again, it's like I say, like ride the wave, but don't be married to the wave. Like when keto comes, ride that wave, but the waves all dissipate at some point. So when it does, you need to be able to move to whatever the next thing is fairly seamlessly.
0: Well, that's, that's a really great. And, and and I'm really glad you brought that up in terms of r- how you were able to kind of ride the keto wave and uh, other brands. Where I know that you kind of came in at the middle, as you said, not the very beginning of uh, uh, of keto when it w- when it was starting out. But what have you done to make sure that you're not maybe married to to the keto wave, right, and be like lasting longer than you know a trend there? Like when you say like you know make sure you're not married to the wave. What exactly do you mean by that?
1: I mean a few things. Uh- you know, don't put keto all over everything in a way that can't be pulled back, like put it there, but be able to pull it back. I guess I'm always not necessarily a fan of having it in your trademark, for instance. Um, so, you know, be, uh, there are some brands that have done this really well, like quest, right? Quest wasn't just the keto bar. They were a low carb, low sugar, bar that made, that made flavors that were like cookie dough or birthday cake or like delectable stuff that was guilt-free. That's fairly, um, trend proof or trend crash proof. Um, and so they could benefit from keto, but keto came and went and they're fine. Like they were never all about that. So there are certain things that just will never get old. Like low sugar will never die and it'll only get more important. Um, I think it'll wax and wane a little bit, but that's not going anywhere. Cause that's, that's straight up ph- physiology and literally everyone agrees it's, it's the right move. So you can marry yourself to truly evergreen trends. Um, I mean, low calories and other, like there will always be people who want lower calories. That's not going away. So, um, but there's different repackaging of these things. So for us, it's like, know have the keto badge call out sugar and net carbs and but it's one piece of the puzzle we want to be able to hook you in four or five different ways so you know someone who just wants a plant protein bar great we want to be able to like service that person well cool someone who just wants like a chocolate bar they don't even care about the diet we still want to be able to service that person someone who's a hardcore keto dieter we want to service that person and it's like all these legs to the stool and then you knock one out, keto, like you're, you're still fine. You still have all the other legs of the stool. Not to mention diets don't really like die truly. They morph. So it was like keto is just a revised Atkins. And there will always be some new thing um, that is an approximation of the prior thing. So just be smart about how do you like – adapt to that same crowd that's kind of doing a similar thing they're just doing it in a different way.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And so kind of, you know, pay attention to your copy um where you want to kind of ride the trend. So maybe you do have keto in there in, th- in this particular example, but at the same time as you say like maybe don't put in the trademark. Don't put it, you know, kind of everywhere a- across your product uh cuz then you'll only kind of be known as, you know, the keto product per se. Um which you know is not is not great but also i think what uh, what i also like about your point was also think about maybe the underlying maybe macro trend or not even trend but just you know what most people believe like low sugar is is a good thing right and so like that probably will not get old hopefully that that will not get old and so also kind of think about that when you think about you know kind of like the copy um going back to you so you've been formulating, you you were able to kind of uh, build um, this, this IQ bar. What was kind of the next step? How did you think about, um, you know, funding this operation? How did you, did you think about, you know, the DDC channel first? Were you also thinking retail? What was kind of going through your head once you actually had a product?
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely were thinking DDC first. We did a Kickstarter and then we rolled that into um, a website. And then we rolled that into an Amazon presence and then Amazon just like took off. It was kind of crazy. Um, again, this was when keto was, was crazy. There weren't that many keto bars on Amazon. And so we just were doing 20 K a month and 30 and 40 and 60 then, you know, and a hundred and we we're like, Whoa, this is crazy. Um, and so that just quickly became uh, an epic channel for us. And then, but very early on, we, we, we did believe omni channel was the answer. Um, it just so happened that you can stand up a business online quicker. Um, but we, we, we still believed it was Omnichannel was the answer and brick and mortar was going to play a role. So our first customer is CVS, which is kind of funny cause no one's no one's first customer is CVS. Um, but you know we got an opportunity there and we did a little pilot with like 10 stores and we did well in them and and then they came to us and they're like hey we want to put you in 3000 doors. and we were like we we're like this is we knew it was risky but we're like screw it let's do it and then we went from producing you know 20 30,000 bars a, a run to like 300,000 bars We had to find a new co-packer in like two months. It was crazy. Um, And it was like a, I think it was like a $700,000 PO. You know, we were like, we had just sold our first bar less than six months prior. Wow. so That's nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's nuts. Um, And then we had that didn't end up being the greatest partnership, but it's like, it helped us get to the next stage. So you, so you ask about like fundraising. There's this sort of what I call like the chicken or egg problem of CPG, which is you you need it's, a, it's such a revenue driven fundraising and valuation architecture, and so just having a PowerPoint deck and I, an idea and some samples isn't going to garner a value that you want. So, but you need money to produce product, to generate sales, to then take those sales back to those people and justify evaluation. So how how do you solve that problem? And um, Kickstarter was a way to solve it. That was how we solved it. And um, so you get pre-sales. And so basically, you know, we did a Kickstarter and it went well, and we did 75K on Kickstarter and then another 15K on Indiegogo, which was like spillover. So we had 90K of sales in the first two months and then we we turned around to these angels who we had been chatting with um we actually got a couple 10k checks tiny checks to actually run the kickstarter itself and then we which was actually turned out to be worked perfectly because when we turned around and we're like cool you know this there's, there's a couple of 10k checks we just sold 90k worth of product and then those turned into 200 thousand dollar each checks and then we got another couple hundred so we raised I think it was like six, six and change, 600 K and change post Kickstarter. And then that was like, cool. now we can like hire a couple people. We can actually do a production run. We can service this, um, CBS order. Um, so that was what kicked it off. And then again, kind of crazy. Kroger was our second customer. Kroger's usually years down the road, but we, we met the buyer at a, event it was like a vmg slash kroger event they hold annually and she just loved the concept and so we went into a thousand krogers like less than a year after we saw their first bar and although all the while like we were growing online too but um but that was kind of crazy too and um we've just gotten smarter and smarter about like don't just go after every door but we're still fairly aggressive after going going after doors um, so we're we're about now today we're approaching 50/50 uh, brick and mortar e-com so we're still the majority of the company is still e-commerce and we're we're in about 8,000 doors so um
0: yeah that's where we're at No that's that's awesome that's really cool what what do you think since you know, this is back, this is obviously pre-sales. What do you think was for successful about, I mean, obviously you had a very successful uh, Kickstarter campaign. Why, why do you believe that it was so successful kind of off the bat?
1: I mean, we did some crazy shit to make it successful. (laughs) We we were not going to like leave it to chance. Um, And when I say we, it was me. And then there's this other guy who helped out with it, but I did some crazy stuff, like not, like gray area stuff. Like we, I, so I told you, I went to Harvard undergrad. So at Harvard, there's this library where you can get these books called red books. And in the book is like, let's say class of 1980. You can flip it open and it's every person's name who was that class and their address and their email address for every class ever. Uh, so I just, so, I just took pictures of literally every page of every single class and then used an image to text conversion software, pulled out all the email addresses, um, and just made this epic list. And then I knew a guy who went to um, Harvard Business School. And I got his login. And so, everyone at Harvard Business School ever has the same template, has the same template for like it's like first dot last at hbs year whatever it's all the same though it's never changed and they can't they of course don't let you export all the people but if you go to advanced search you do every possible permutation of like filtering you can triangulate like 98 percent of anyone who's ever gone to hbs you know like tennis club like tennis club and drama club, you know, just every permutation. And then you just dedupe the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I just had like 100,000 emails. And I was, I did the same thing for my wife, went to BU. I did the same thing for, so I generated this massive list. And then I created a MailChimp. And, um, and I knew I was going to just trash the domain score if I use our actual. You know, because we we're gonna get marked to spam by a lot of people, so I couldn't use bar.com. So I used my undergraduate, Harvard undergraduate email address. So I was like, oh, I'll just the Harvard domain scrap who cares, right? Um so that was the from. And yeah, we made a MailChimp account, and then I would just blast out. And I'd be like, hey, my name's Will. I was undergrad, as class of 14. You know, I saw your class of whatever, you know, just was wondering if you'd check out my, my campaign I just launched. I'm a first time founder, you know, kind of woe is me type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I literally sent that out to like tens of thousands of people like daily. Um, this was after we launched the campaign, of course, the very quickly, you know, a lot of people marked it as spam, and and Mailchimp shut our account down. But we were getting a ton of sales from it too, because um, <laughs> a ton of people were like, "Oh, this is cool. Sure, happy to support. You know, it's like twenty bucks or whatever. What do they care?" But then you get all these people who are like, "How the hell did you get my email address? Like, marking as spam or whatever." Then you just get weird people who go on some like diatribe, and it's like, Jesus, like you're doing this for every spam you get. But, um, but yeah, they shut our account down and then we were like feigned ignorance and we're like, Oh, what? Like we didn't know. We didn't know we can, couldn't do that. Like, and so anyway, they reinstate it and we just immediately go back to just blasting, blasting, blasting. <laughs> um, And then they shut it down a second time. But by that point we had gotten it all out. Like we had, we had hit everyone. So yeah, we absolutely crushed it on that tactic and, uh, and it was all free. Like that was all free, free sale. There's $0 spent, you know, my time, but, um, so that was a big reason we did well. And then friends and family, and then it's a momentum game. So like you do really well early. We also did this thing where you could, I could, you could pre commit a share so I could say, hey, Mike, can can you just donate a share? Meaning, here's a message, you use this software, and then it schedules it, and then it'll post on your timeline on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever, Facebook, as if you posted it. So you're pre-scheduling it, and it's, hey, check out my friend Will's Kickstarter. And I
0: aggregated hundreds of those. So I know that you started off in conventional, which I would think is a little bit unusual for your product. um, Considering I would have thought that natural, that I I would think that that the trajectory would be starting off in natural and then going to conventional. Once you got past a thousand Kroger's, like did you think about going into natural? How did you think about maybe additional retailers?
1: Yeah. So natural, the brand is really conducive to natural and works well in natural. Whole foods is always like the standard everyone thinks like, oh, are you in Whole Foods? And um, we couldn't get into Whole Foods because we didn't, we used allulose, which is a banned ingredient, which is kind of crazy. I think they conflated this idea of allulose being a genetically modified, a GMO ingredient, even though there was non-GMO allulose available, blah, blah, blah. It's, It's kind of technical, but point being, we couldn't go into Whole Foods. So we're like, okay, that's where real scale is on the natural side. And there's natural grocers and a couple couple others, but we were always interested in scale. And so, you know, ticky tacky, 10 doors here, 20 doors there. Pretty quickly, we learned that it's roughly the same amount of effort to get into 1,000 doors as it is to get into 10 doors. And where are those big 1,000-door chunks? They're in conventional. Um, I mean, we learned that really early on with Kroger and it was great. And, and we succeeded in Kroger too. So that was a big proof point. Like we could have not succeeded in Kroger and then we're like, oh shoot, you know, conventional is not going to work, but it did. And it worked even without us really having like national name brand recognition. So we're like, okay, we actually, we think what we're doing here is unique enough and the product's good enough where we can go into conventional and also not have a ton of recognition and just succeed. And so, yeah, we just started looking, I mean, we started knocking on every retailer's door um, and got, got into Sprouts, got into Wegmans, started doing well there. um, And it just sort of mushroomed from, from there. I, I think it did help that, Again, there are a couple things that help keto and low carb and low sugar really being explosive. There's no doubt that that helped. Um, Our online business growing in tandem, there's no doubt that that helped too. Um, There's definitely a flywheel effect there. Um, But it it was really interesting. Like we did a a Costco roadshow in LA not too long ago and we're like a decent sized brand now and LA is trendy and people are healthy and all that we talked to like 10,000 people probably over the course of eight days, how many had heard of us? Like four, you know, five. So it's like to, you know, to get actual name brand recognition ads, it's like you have to be hundreds of millions of dollars and to truly have of those 10,000, like 200 know you, you have to be giant. And so you're, what I realized is like, you're never going to get that name brand recognition. So you're just going to, any way you slice it, you're going to have to be able to, to succeed in a retailer, in a context where most people coming up to you don't know who you are.
0: No, totally. Totally. I mean, what were, what were I guess, some of your learnings from that Costco experience of like, just with, with like 10,000 customers?
1: It was really interesting. It was, you know, a lot of people say like, do you, have, you, know, do, you do focus groups and how do you make, you know... We've never done a focus group ever. I would say the best possible focus group is something like a Costco roadshow. Like go literally stand in a store and talk to 10,000 people. You'll you'll learn pretty quickly what's confusing about your packaging, what's confusing about your product, what resonates about your product, what do people want, how has, like, like take the keto thing. Um, very few keto dieters came up to us, whereas I think that would be different you know, call it a year prior and, you know, just little things like a lot of people asked about added sugar, which like wasn't even really on our radar. We're like, well, it's already low sugar. What, what, why are you, why do you care about added sugar? Even if it was added, it's like one gram. But for whatever reason, like tons of people were like, oh, and is that one gram added? We're like, what? You know, um, like, no, I, but it happened enough where we're like, "Wow, that's a thing people care about, even in a low sugar context."
0: No, that's that's really interesting. And so it just kind of when you it really helped when it came to like the copy and, and 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 like the and and just the overall branding for IQ Bar. Did it affect at all what you thought about flavors or um, or how you thought about the actual composition of the product uh, itself? Yeah.
1: Um, but uh, honestly that, that kind of stuff, the data is pretty good, like for better or worse, you know, for better or worse, like the same things year in, in and year out Win in bars, like it's always chocolate, it's always peanut butter. And I think we tried to get cute with that early on, um, with unique flavors. And just what we learned was like people I think a cup the Whole Foods crowd likes that. There's always gonna be a demo that likes that. True scale, n- no one wants that. Like they want what they want. It's gonna be these flavor. And and just don't, my perspective, don't innovate on flavor, innovate on like other stuff. Functionality, like form fact, you know. Do you are you power crunch and it's like you're unique because it's like a light wa- wafery kind of a form factor, whereas people are used to like hard or soft, and it's like innovate in some other variable. I think it's really hard to innovate and win on like different flavor profiles. Yeah, it was it was eye opening in in
0: all regards. What's overall like the goal with IQ Bar and and where you're headed? Is it um like is it eventually to like for the right price, maybe sell, uh, sell the business or like, how, how kind of big do you want to grow? Um, do you feel? I think maybe I'm,
1: uh, this is not a romantic answer, right? The romantic answers. I never want to sell and you know, this is my baby and I want to, whatever, accomplish XYZ mission, which is all good and true. But I, I think you have to emotionally divorce yourself from, the product company etc and think about it rationally and i actually think it's a good hygiene exercise annually to to like look at the company and say could we sell it forget forget if you want to sell it could we sell it and if we can't why not like okay we can't because we're this much negative ebitda and you know the product's not there and whatever like you have a laundry list of reasons and then you know whether or not you end up trying to sell it is a different thing, but I, i we do that like annually. Like, okay, could we even sell this? Is there a market for an asset like this? But I think you, I mean, if someone approaches you with the right offer at any point, that's you'd be silly to re, to refuse. You you don't refuse it. And that's my opinion. Um, you know, so and it's not like the mission. I don't know. The, the, Seth Goldman has a good chapter on this in his book mission in a bottle where he he talks about getting acquired by Coke. And he's like, I mean, what's the net result? The net result is uh, honest tea goes into way, way more hands now. And so if, if our mission was to like spread lower sugar tea, well, that, that acquisition 10 X that, that, that goal. So of course then, you know, they added sugar every year and then they discontinued the brand. Right. So it's not a great ending, but how many servings were served over the five or ten years post-acquisition? A zillion. So I, I don't. I just. I just don't think. I think you have to always prepare a resilient asset that could that you could sell. Don't get caught up in a trap where you're lo- you're on life support and you have to sell, but you want to be in a place where you could sell. But because the M and A markets go up and down, and down, I mean, we've been through a wild couple of years here, um, where basically they went dead, other than mega acquisitions in 2022, Cliff Bar and that big injection from Pepsi into Celsius and um, you know Hero Cosmetics, blah blah blah. Those are all big, big deals. Right? I don't think there's any deals being done in like the mid market and very few in the in the low end of the market. So that was like that was like M&A winter for a while. And then now we're in kind of this weird spot. So you never can predict the macro environment or the M&A markets. um, So don't be on life support and have to sell, but try and position yourselves where you have optionality at all times.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a great point in terms of you kind of have to think about the company first and what your original mission was. And if your original mission was to kind of get the product into most number of consumers and like an acquisition can be really fruitful. Right. Um, uh, you know, and so provided that, you know, maybe it all goes well, with, which I guess you never really know if it all goes well. Like, like as we kind of saw with, with, um, with Honest Tea, like they obviously had the product for a long time, but then, it, but, but then it eventually discontinued it. Um, but, uh, but still they sold, you know, a zillion,
1: but what's the, and then what's the counter scenario, right? Cause we assume, oh, they didn't sell, yeah, they would have gone and they might've gone out of business Right and now they're right. selling exactly. zero servings, right? So, and then it's the same thing with any startup. It's like, you don't know what the counterfactual to that acquisition path is. And many times it's wouldn't have been good um i mean it's hard you also have to think about what your personal mission is and goal is like it takes 10 years which is what it you know it takes to build build a big brand that's a long ass time your life changes a lot you might have a couple kids in that period you know you might want to buy a house in that period like what's your personal mission too
0: and that changes over time yeah that's a great that's a great point how are you thinking right now when it comes to expansion or not con- or maybe um, or not expanding um, w- when it comes to 2023 um, and IQ bar when it comes to, like retail?
1: I think we want to continue to grow aggressively in areas we think we can win, which is most areas um, we can hit competitive price points and have competitive value propositions in most channels. Um, We've just learned that. So, you know, we don't want to overextend ourselves. We're a very small team still. There's only six office employees. Um, So we can't overextend ourselves, but it's like, we operate off of an energy in revenue out ratio. So like every possible move we make is looked through that lens. So for a retailer, again, it was like what I was saying earlier. Like, if there's a ten store chain and it's going to take six months to close that chain, and the revenue that that'll spit out is whatever fifty grand annually, is that how good is that energy and revenue out? Mm, not that good. So, like literally, power rank every opportunity by that. Ratio and and just go top to bottom. I mean, it's it's almost as simple as that. Of course, the devil's in the details. It's highly nuanced and yada yada.
0: But from a go to market strategy, that is that is it. That is it. No, that's uh, uh, that's useful. Um, what's what's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Well, oh, I just did a post on this today. I, I really liked, um, and it's a bit of a cliche answer, but it's top of mind, Shoe Dog. Um, I really liked that book because Phil Knight built Nike in a time before like venture capital. And there's just a lot of the infrastructure for startups that just didn't exist. And it was, he was just kind of a guy figuring it out. Um, startups weren't even that cool then. Um I don't know, I just, and it's a tangible good. And um, the way he grew, it was really cool. It was cool because the way he financed it was really clever through that Japanese company. Um, The whole thing was just incredibly well done. And it's an interesting time, a different time. I think a lot of other startup material now is like, we built this team and then we raised this much from Sequoia and then yada, yada, yada. And it was just a more old school fundamentals driven, like I'm selling shoes out of the back of my car type story, which I've always just loved. So that one, I guess, professionally, um, personally, this is also kind of cliche, but, um, in a very short read influenced by Robert Cialdini. I, I just continue to love, which it's super simple. It's basically, why does anyone do anything? And how can anyone make anyone else do anything? What are, that the things that drive our decisions don't actually change over time. They manifest in different ways, but fundamentally don't change. So reciprocity will always be a big reason we do stuff. Social proof will always be a reason we do stuff appealing to it. You know, a sense of authority. You know, people want to buy medical products from someone who plays a doctor on TV. Like we can't help but, assign authority to that. There are all these things that are like totally evergreen concepts um, that I guess that's kind of professionally too, but, but I use that, you know, I, I think about that stuff a lot, a lot personally.
0: No, I, that's, that's great. Both those shoe dog is always like the number one book wreck on the show. Um, Influence though has only, only been brought up a couple times though. So um, appreciate that.
1: Well, my all-time favorite book is How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. You ever read that?
0: No, I haven't read that actually.
1: Oh man, it's it's a classic. It's a tongue-in-cheek title. Um, the guy, it's a guy who started Maxim magazine. This hilarious British guy. Same deal, by the way. Old school. We're talking magazines. Like this yeah. guy was printing magazines and slinging magazines, physical magazines. And I just love those, like old school brick by brick physical product type type businesses
0: that that's my favorite book of all time no okay that's that that's great um i excited to add that to, to to our uh to the book list that's that's awesome i've i've heard great things about how to get rich i just i just need to i just obviously need to read it um what's what's been i know that you've raised some money i think one one like institutional round if 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 that's right um but what's what's kind of your approach or philosophy when it comes to like raising capital from and uh, equity capital per se.
1: I'm heavily colored by my personal experience here, but I'll, I'll that's my caveat, and I'll, now I'll tell you my personal experience, which I believe is a good way to do it because it, it has worked out thus far. Raise less money more often is the sort of ethos. Um, and that works really badly if the market implodes. Uh, and it works pretty well if you're doing well and the market doesn't implode. So, you know, I started the company in a middle of an epic bull run, uh, bull market run in like, you know, 20, Jan, 2018, and I could raise a pretty decent valuations and in a not so dilutive way. And I would just raise less money and do it every year. It, it's also exhausting by the way. So that's not great, but. Yeah, you, know, you can raise. I think I raised 600k, and then a year later, raised a million, and then, and then a year after that, year and change after that, I raised 2.75, and then a year, and then two years after that, we raised more than that, shall we say? But um, but the whole we we still retain control of the company, even after whatever it's been four or five raises because each time it was what's the smallest amount that'll get us to the next revenue hurdle. And so it was minimally dilutive, but we also, so I I personally believe you can't do this game without fundraising and you can't really do it without fairly substantial fundraising. And I guess that substantial is all relative, right? But, and even beverage to food is wildly relative, but like if you really want to, blow it out and build a big whatever, hundred million dollar business, you're gonna need to raise 10 million bucks. And it very likely more than that, um, unless you are a skincare product and you have an 85% margin or whatever. So I just don't think bootstrapping is f- effectively relevant to CPG. Um, like I don't even know one example where it, it that happened successfully. So now it just becomes, okay, what's the strategy? And for me, the less more often work pretty well. But again, now we're in this whole different environment, right? It's a, it's just a it's just a different environment than, than when I started. So maybe that's not great advice now, I don't know. Will, this has been such a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Will. I hope you all enjoyed listening. I highly recommend following Will on LinkedIn where he shares his journey daily. Again, If you're loving the show, highly recommend checking out the newsletter. You can sign up at theconsumerbc.com. You'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thanks for listening, folks.